0: Good morning, Barberton campus. How are we doing this morning? Good. Beautiful day out there, and I am glad to be here with you. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors at the Norton campus. How many of you this past Tuesday had an opportunity to look at the NBA draft lottery? Not many. NBA one Ethan back there, right? I am a huge basketball fan, in particular Cavaliers fan, so it was a little bit of a disappointment because we secured the fifth pick, missing out on the rights to draft Zion Williamson, who is known as kind of the next LeBron James, right? And when it comes to basketball, I like the history of basketball and the opportunity that I observe history being made presently. And I often kind of Like, think of this scenario. Imagine it's 50 years and, Lord willing, I'm still alive, that I am around the dinner table with my grandchildren. And I begin having a conversation with them about who LeBron was. And I share with them how, when I was in college, I worked fraternity fundraiser, and I got to watch him play at the JAR Arena at the University of Akron. Then I share with them how... In 2003, when the Cavs got the first pick, I remember the library that I went to to go research and learn because I was working at a summer camp. And then I tell them about that I lived in Bookdale Place in 2007 when the Cavs were playing game six versus the Detroit Pistons and LeBron scored 45 points in double overtime, 25 straight points to take the Cavs to the NBA Finals. They'd go on to lose and be swept by the Spurs. But I tell them the great news that in 2016, the curse was reversed, Right, The mistake by the lake no longer applies because the Cavs won the championship, Right, Maybe I share a little bit the heartache of the decision and the excitement of him coming home and how I drove by his house on those nights, right, to see the activity of what was going on. But I wonder if my grandchild will have a perception of who LeBron was off the court, Right? That maybe he was actively involved in the community. That I had neighbors who had bikes that were given by LeBron. That he started this I Promise school, right? And he's awarding potentially 2,300 scholarships to students in our area to go to the University of Akron. Or maybe his ambitions from the film industry, or maybe even his uh, political views, right? I am curious and wonder what their impression of LeBron may be. Their impression of LeBron will be based upon what their exposure, what they've learned, and what they've researched to. And based upon our impression, we make an understanding or a perception on that individual. Well, I think the same thing is true when it comes to Jesus. Many of us are aware of his birth right? The scene at the manger, the shepherd's coming, the fact that he may have been born of a virgin, Mary, right? People may have a concept. They celebrate Christmas. And others may be aware when it comes to Easter, his trial, his his death, his burial, his resurrection. And for often, many of us, we kind of have the highlights of Jesus when it comes to to Christmas time and Easter. But how much do we know the story in between? That's what we want to cover over the next 11 weeks. I'm excited about the series. We want to look at Jesus in between his birth and his resurrection, that we want to fill out and paint our perception and understanding of who he is because that influences our response to him. And so my hope today is that we just kind of set the stage for that conversation and we'd invite you to journey with us over these next 11 weeks as we try to uncover uh, the uncensored, unedited version of who Jesus is. So today to set the stage, I'd like you to turn, if you want to follow along in your Bible or if you follow along on the screen, to John chapter 1. And in this, we're going to see that Jesus is a unique and blend of things that seem paradoxical, okay? By paradox, we mean two contrary, contradictory ideas that smash together make something powerful and potent. An example, the idea of less is more. Statistically, when we are given a... Uh, lot of choices, we are less satisfied with the choice that we make, right? That if it is less complicated, it is often more appreciated. And sometimes paradoxes take us a while to, to work it out and to understand its power and its potency. And so I believe in John chapter one, we're introduced to two significant paradoxes when it comes to who Jesus is. John chapter 1, if you're there to see the first. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, what you'll see is, in our English translation, this idea of the word. The origin of that one written originally in Greek comes from the word logos. Greek philosophers had a term logos that they would use to describe the origin and understanding of the universe. From Logos, the principles, they would understand the meaning and purpose of life. It was this common philosophy or understanding that from the Logos, we could perceive and understand the meaning and purpose of life. So John, as he's writing, is referring to one of the persons in the Godhead as the Word. And what he's saying is, That in the beginning, right, that he would take the readers back to the terminology used in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. That the Word was with God, but he'd go on to say that the Word was God. Right? That he is introducing us to the person of Jesus. That he would say that God himself became a man and put skin on, that God has existed always and forever, and at one point became a human. And what we see is this paradox that often is very mind-blowing, but we have to work it out, is the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. right? When we begin to understand our impression of who he is, It is central for us to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Now, for us to kind of understand or begin to have a concept, we need to begin to make sense of what is known as the Trinity, right? That God exists as one entity in three persons. I don't know if you've seen a picture or kind of a symbol like this before. I remember uh, I was a teenager and I have a younger brother and we were going to my cousin's wedding and we went to uh, this more like traditional church for the wedding. And we looked in and my brother uh, looks at me and he says, what is that weird triangle there? And I'm like, what do you mean, the, the triangle that talks about the Trinity? And he's like, yeah, like what's the Trinity? I'm like, Matt, we grew up in church, like you don't understand that God is one person that... You know, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's one like that is so central to what we believe, right? That it can blow our mind as we try to grasp and understand the Trinity, right? All illustrations fall slightly short in trying to grasp and understand the Trinity. But what we are left with is that we don't have to fully resolve it, but yet we have to recognize and respond to who God is. The Bible consistently teaches that Jesus is not merely someone who's a lot like God, who walked with God, rather that he is most high God himself. That when the Bible talks about Jesus, it often talks about his attributes, that he is all-knowing, that he has all power, that he has always existed, that he will never cease to exist, that Jesus is our creators, that in other other words, everything that is God is also Jesus. There's an archbishop by the name of Gregory of Nazianus. If you're a historian, I may be pronouncing it wrong. But in the 4th century, he wrote this about this understanding of God being fully God and fully human. All right? And he goes on to say this about Jesus. Jesus was baptized as a man, but he remitted sins as God. He was tempted as a man, but he conquered as God. He hungered, but he fed thousands. He thirsted, but he cried, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He was wearied, but he offered rest to those who were heavy burdened, Laden. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He prays, but he hears prayer. He asks where Lazarus was laid, for he was a man. But yet he raised Lazarus from the dead, for he was God. He is sold cheap, cheaply for 30 pieces of silver. Yet he redeems the world at a great price by his own blood. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He dies, but he gives life. His death destroys death. He is buried, but he rises again. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And I think for us, there are some implications or things that that is fleshed out. In the first we see in John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. That in the process of God becoming a man, I can know exactly what God is like. This has made him known comes from this terminology that's called exegesis, okay? We use that word often when we talk about how to study our Bible, right? That we want to exegete properly, that we want to draw out or pull the truth of God's word, rather than the opposite, which is called eisegesis, that we want to read our own perspective and opinion into God. And so what John is saying here is that Jesus exegetes God perfectly. He is a perfect, exact representation of what God is like. I think many of us have this understanding of an eisegesis God. That we determine and understand what God is like based upon our own experiences or our own perceptions. That some of us have a pretty rough picture of who God is like. That some of us have an ice Jesus God. Maybe we think that we have to be afraid of God, that He will beat us up for our shortcomings or our mistakes. Or maybe some of us think of God as far out or very impersonal. But what we see is that when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus exegetes. God perfectly and it helps us understand what God is like, what He thinks about, what He says in response, and how He lives. If you like to take notes, I'd like you to write this down. Jesus is God explaining Himself to us. When God showed up with skin on, He often wasn't very impressed with people that were religious. He was really hard. On the religious people. But he ate with sinners, he touched the lepers, he pursued people and had a heart of compassion. If we ever wonder what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we ever wonder what Jesus would what God would say, we look at Jesus. If we ever wonder how he might react, we look at Jesus. Hebrews 1 3 says, the Son, that's Jesus. Is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus went to great lengths, God did, to help us know him and to be able to understand him. But it doesn't stop there that Jesus has gone to great lengths to understand us as well. John 1.14, we shared earlier, it says, Jesus, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, this word dwelt means that God pitched his tent with us. It's this idea of tabernacling with his people. What it would have taken the readers back is, in the Old Testament, God's presence was with the nation of Israel in the tabernacle. That's where they understood that God resided. And so we see this word choice here that when God put skin on, he dwelt with us. He didn't appear for a short while, but literally did life with us. He lived with us. Dorothy Sayers wrote a book 50 years ago called Creator Chaos. And this is what she said. For whatever reason... God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born into poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. That God knows exactly what it's like to live life As a human, this is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. That our God just didn't appear, but that He chose to do life with us as a human being. And what you and I can take from this fact is that Jesus is God who is empathizing with us. We have a God who knows what it's like to be hungry, to be happy, and to hurt. We have a God who had to learn to walk, who may have struggled with pimples and warts. He may have had crushes. Maybe he got sick. He had headaches, struggled with body odor. His feelings most likely were hurt. His body ached from a hard day's work. He experienced friendship and rejection. He experienced community and conflict. He knows what it's like to laugh with a friend and knows what it's like to lose a friend. We have a God who's available, experience, and understands us. One thing for sure is that as he was completely divine, he was also completely human. Hebrews 4 talks about the significance of God becoming a human in terms of Him being able to understand us. Verse 14 of chapter 4 Therefore, since we have a great high priest, the priest's role was to be the mediator between God and humanity. That great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet responded perfectly without sin. Let us then approach his throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace in the time of need. We can have the full confidence that when we interact with god he understands our circumstances and our situations right have you been in an environment where maybe you see strangers or people together begin to interact and share their commonalities yesterday evening i had a close friend who had a reveal party so we went out into the country and you know he did his little shot he likes to hunt and blew up, and he had, uh, is having a girl in October, okay? But at this party, there were a lot of strangers who didn't know each other. And as I'm interacting and observing conversations, I'm watching Don and Travis begin to connect over their hunting stories, right? Their experiences of sharing life with one another and correlating and understanding each other and building their relationship. Or I'm observing my wife and the other ladies begin talking about their birthing stories, right? They're at a reveal party, right? And so we know what it's like to interact with someone who's experienced life like we have. And what we have here is that we can approach God with confidence that when we pray, he understands our circumstances and our situations. That we can approach His throne with confidence, with grace, knowing that God has gone to great lengths to understand us. That he can empathize with the struggles that he hears us and he wants to be available and help us to walk through those struggles. We see that God, Jesus is God empathizing with us. That Jesus is God explaining himself to us. But there's one more thing that I think is significant for us to see. That Jesus is God exchanging places with us. That Jesus is God taking our place at the cross and standing in place of our position and struggle with sin. That he became a man so that he could be the right sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice in place of our sin. We see this in Hebrews 2 when it talks about Jesus becoming a man. It says, "...since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, though, so that by his death he might break the power of death, of him who holds that power which is the devil." And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us, humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That he might make an atonement, the perfect sacrifice the sins of his people that Jesus exchanges places with you and I so that we don't have to, to suffer the consequences of our sin and no longer have to fear death that gives us the freedom to be unchained from the fear of death so that we may live I don't know if you've ever heard this paradoxical statement, but the more you are afraid of death, the less you'll be able to enjoy life. Right? That God has given us this freedom and enjoyment that we can have hope beyond the grave because he's exchanged places with us that he first conquered, was the first one to be resurrected. And we too can live in response to what he's done and what he's promised to do that Jesus is God exchanging his life for us, that he empathizes with us, that he explains God to, to us. Now in John 1, this isn't the only statement that seems paradoxical. As we read on and look further, we see a description of the character of God. And at first, Two aspects that describe him that seem contradictory. And it's found in verse 14 of John 1. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'd like it to write it this way. Jesus is full of grace or truth. All of us have probably heard that in one way or another but I think it's important for us to unpack what grace is and what truth is to fully understand God's character and how he exists as two words that are used to describe his totality. Grace, the best way to think of grace is this analogy that's often used in scripture of the idea of a gift. right? When we compare a gift versus a loan, there is no repayment required. A gift is freely given, but it was based upon an expense taken on by the giver of that gift. That once a gift has been given, the ownership of that gift has transferred. That it is permanently ours to keep. That it doesn't exist with loans or advances. That when the Bible talks about grace, grace is the gift of unmerited favor. That there's nothing we can do to earn that response in this case. Often, maybe you've heard of it, it comes from uh, another religion, but this idea of karma, right? There's television shows about it. That karma says we will eventually in this life. Get what we deserve. Grace is the opposite of karma. That we do not always receive what we deserve. Right. That there may be consequences and difficulty from our choices, but grace is saying that we receive what we did not deserve. That karma isn't compatible with this idea of grace. That it is a gift of unmerited favor. What is truth, right? In a very relative culture, we want to define truth based upon things that work for us, right? Maybe truth is based upon a pragmatism. Truth can only be based on experience or things that work. Truth is not simply things that are understandable. Truth is not what makes you and I feel good. Truth is not what a majority says. We all know that 51 or more percent of people can be very wrong about something. Truth is not what is comprehensive. A lengthy dictation about a subject doesn't make it truthful. Truth is not defined by good intentions. And it is not simply what is believed. We all can believe a lie. Truth is constant and unchangeable reality. It is surrounded by things that are verifiable and factual. Truth is not allowing our feelings or emotions to dictate whether something is right or wrong. It is reality as it really is. Now, when we come to this idea of grace and truth, many people want to hold them as contradictory to one another. How can we understand this idea of being graceful or what is often interpreted as being nice with what is truthful or being tough in a circumstance, right? And so this picture kind of shows, I think, the paradigm that many people think of when they think of grace or truth. That I have to either, in certain circumstances, be nice or tell the truth and be tough. That there are these opposing ends. But what we see in Scripture is that they're not necessarily contradictory, but can be complementary. Randy Alcorn has a small book called The Grace and Truth Paradox. And he says, This apparent conflict that exists between grace and truth because they're incompatible, we, because we lack the perspective to resolve this paradox. The two, he says, are interdependent. We should never approach truth except in a spirit of grace or grace except in a spirit of truth. Jesus wasn't 50% grace, 50% truth. Rather, he was 100% truth, 100% grace. And I think this picture that I have gotten from the gravity matrix leadership gives a better idea of how we should understand grace. Let's go to that next picture. And you see uh, on this perspective that there are occasions where I can exhibit high grace in high truth, right? When we come with a situation and it's low grace. In low truth, we check out. We're not engaged. We don't really care. We don't want to involve ourselves. When it comes to this situation where it's all about truth, that's this idea of calling someone out, calling them on the carpet, letting them know what is right and wrong. And the hangout is, hey, everything's okay, right? I don't want to get in your business. I'm okay just being nice in this circumstance. But what we see in the life of Jesus is this picture of calling people in. When I think of his life, there is one particular story that really stands out to me that clarifies this idea of grace and truth. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, and the Pharisees come to him. They're always looking for ways to kind of twist or uh, put Jesus on the spot. And they bring a woman who's caught in adultery. And they bring her right before Jesus. So they're questioning her. Jesus, should we stone this woman? We know what the law of Moses says. This is a sin that is worthy of death. Says Jesus, kind of looks down. I imagine kind of slowly writing in the sand, in the dirt. And they question him again. Jesus, what should we do? Kind of looks up. Says, anyone that is without sin be the first to cast the stone. Goes back to his business, writing in the dirt. And what John 8 says, one by one, the Pharisees begin to peel off. And Jesus is left alone with this woman. And he says, Have they condemned you? She responds, No, no one's here. Neither do I condemn you but he leaves her with leave your life of sin. Grace and truth fully seen in the life of Jesus, that once we look at his life, we begin to see pictures and ideas of Jesus exhibiting grace and truth. When it comes to you and I, I think we have to wrestle with this tension of holding grace and truth together. Randy Alcorn later explains that both grace and truth are vital for the Christian faith. Truth without grace is legalism. Grace without truth will lead people to believe that sinning is no big deal. The question that I ask myself often, am I convicted at the expense of kindness? Truth people are easy to admire. They have strong convictions, strong principles, a strong understanding of what is right and wrong. Often they're unhappy with injustice or oppression or evil. They can be articulate and well-spoken. But truth is something that doesn't bully or condemn others. Truth doesn't, that doesn't reflect grace is not truly truth at all. I think on the other end of the spectrum, do I sacrifice truth with a desire to be nice? Grace people are pleasant to be around. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. They don't want to state anything that may come across as offensive or hurtful or something that would show our lives are wrong affirmation and being grace-filled are not the same thing. Today, often we want to confuse Christ-likeness with niceness, right? That is this picture of if you're not fully accepting of my actions, then you can't be grace-filled. This is the camp that wants to contextualize truth to the changing culture, That we don't want to marginalize or be seen as others as irrelevant. That God is a God of love. How could we ever say anything that may hurt someone or cause them offense? But the truth is, I can be kind and convicted. I can be full of grace and truth. I love a saying that was developed by Pastor Bob. At our uh, Norton campus, he says, We accept people where they're at to take them where they need to go. That this grace filled acceptance of their circumstance and situation with the hope, desire, perspective of direction of helping them where they need to go. And for you and I, we need to always hold those in tension. And honestly, there are really hard circumstances for us to navigate that. But we should never give up grace at the expense of truth or give up truth at the expense of grace. I think of a conversation I had Wednesday with a parent. They have a teenager, and they're struggling with their is having uh, thoughts of g- her gender, of which gender she is and uh, whether or not her attraction to people of the same sex. And so when we begin to talk, what I can leave them with, right, is this idea that as we navigate these really hard conversations, we can never give up on this idea of grace and truth. Right, that as we approach others in this world, we must always be asking the question, how am I showing grace? How am I displaying truth? Right? Because for those that have aligned their life to Jesus, we must always be asking that question How am I growing in grace? Am I more graceful today than I was five, ten years ago? Right? Am I more of a joyful, pleasant person to be around? Am I more encouraging and affirmative? Am I more aware of my faults, my shortcomings, my sins, and my mistakes? right that i understand my need of god's grace more now than i did back then right because that allows us to live in response and extend grace to others only when we've experienced to the level of grace that we have in our relationship with god can we begin to extend that for others but am i growing in his truth do i marinate in environments that help me understand who God is, what he's done, and what he said for us to live in response? Am I growing in my understanding of circumstances and situations and principles that he's given us to live by? Am I growing in my conviction to what is true and not true? That's why we take the time to create these study guides along with our series that we offer you. Today with the new series, we have a 50-day journey through the Gospels available for you. Because what we know is that the greatest predictor of spiritual growth will be your personal time in the Word of God. And we know that there are environments that we can prioritize and be in so that we understand God's truth. That we can live in response and be convicted and unashamed of what he's told us to live in. Am I growing in grace? Am I growing in truth? I want to conclude with one final thought that we see in John chapter 4. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we read through John, we see two themes that emerge early on. It's this idea of life and this idea of light. And they go hand in hand. And what John is saying is, without light, there cannot be life. I read recently in a popular science article that if imagine the sun was simply turned off, what would happen? That within a week, the average temperature on earth would go down to zero degrees Fahrenheit. Over the course of a year later, it would go down to 100 degrees, negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That it's not possible to have life without light. And what God's light does for you and I is reveals his truth so that we can enjoy life. Look at John 3. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Light always hurts before it helps. But it is the true light that Jesus gives us to understand his truth and in turn, his grace. And what we see in John chapter 1 is that each and every one of us are left with a choice. That the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or of human decision, but born of God. That as we navigate this life, that we come to one of two conclusions, that I will either fully recognize or fully reject him, that we're not left with a neutral choice, that we can't think of Jesus as this great teacher, but yet someone that I don't submit my life to. God hasn't given us that option. That if I truly believe who he is, I'm left with the response of have I recognized what God has done for me? Or in turn, have I rejected what he's offered? God seems to have a preference for paradox. He's imminent yet transcendent. He's merciful yet he's just. He's knowable, yet he's mysterious. And he invites you and I to live in that paradox. That we are called the chief of creatures, the pinnacle of God's creation, but the chief of sinners. That my bad news is God's very good news that the poor become rich, that the dirty he makes clean, that those who are humble are exalted, those who are weak he makes strong, that we conquer only through yielding, that blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, that we become wise by being fools for Jesus, that we live by dying. God invites you and I to live in this tension of who he is and what he's done that we can't fully resolve the paradox but we're called to recognize and respond and he invites us to grow in that tension that living in response of who he is and how his character has been displayed means that i am committing my life to a growing tension of grace and truth it's not something that's going to become easier Spiritual maturity says that when I do, I'm going to grow in this tension because I'm going to grow in my passion to love others with a depth and understanding of how much he's loved me. But I'm going to hold firmly and fastly to his truth, which is, gives us the clarity in a world that at times is honestly hard to navigate. Jesus invites you and I to live paradoxically in response of who he is and what he's done. That Jesus is fully God, yet fully man. That he is full of truth, full of grace. That he is the light of life, and he offers you and I life.